What's up, everybody? Welcome to Ask for Candy, where we talk about healing, self-care, love, sex, relationships, and what it takes to be amazing on the daily. Who I am is CandiceHarperLoveCoach.com, and my purpose with this podcast is to create healthy, romantic relationships all around the world through self-love, soul connections, and sweetness. But before we get to that, don't forget to subscribe to our audio broadcast, Ask for Candy on Anchor, iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you normally download podcasts. Or you can email us at askforcandypodcast at gmail.com to leave comments and ask questions, and those questions will be answered in a later broadcast. Those of you who have been listening, you know that for almost nine years, I have been a relationship coach and a workshop facilitator, and I'm also a professional matchmaker, but I just left the company I was at, but I have all these ideas stewing around for, you know, whether I'm going to take matchmaking to the next level with my coaching and my hypnotherapy and, you know, just be like a soup to nuts kind of, kind of operation. I'm not sure. I've got some interesting ideas around that, especially for those of us who are out here dating at a certain age. And, you know, there's a certain demographic that I think deserves an affordable and, uh, complete experience when it comes to this dating thing. Because I'll tell you the truth, I, you know, I feel like I worked for a couple matchmaking companies and one I loved, one I hated. But, um, you know, I feel like what might be missing is that component of helping people. Because most people who come and pay a whole lot of money for matchmaking, they need a little bit more than just, you know, uh, put, you know, put somebody in front of me. They need or put a bunch of people in front of me. They usually need some sort of coaching, some sort of support, some sort of assistance. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, we all need some sort of support and assistance when we are endeavoring to do something that's been a challenge, right? So I don't know. I'm tossing it around. Those of you who listen all the time, you know, I talk about, you know, my method of matchmaking and there's just a lot of possibility out there. But, you know, I got so much going on right now, so much that I'm thinking about, so much that I'm up to. But you guys know that that the coaching, the hypnotherapy and the facilitation and the matchmaking are all how I live into my purpose. My purpose is to love myself unconditionally and inspire others to do the same because that's how I feel that we end up having healthy relationships. You know, we use our romantic lives as a portal, an inspiration, a catalyst to our highest possible self. So for those of you who are out there lamenting about bad relationships you've had or bad relationships you might be in or struggles that you've had, all of that is there to grow us. So it's a wonderful, beautiful thing. And so, um, as I always say, relationship coaching is my zone of genius. And the best part about it is that week to week, I get to grow and learn as I interact with hundreds of people around the most intimate parts of their lives. And I get to take people on their journey from caterpillar to butterfly, from unhappy with their love lives or their partners to ecstatic. I get to teach people how to get out of their own way and tap into love as a limitless resource. And most importantly of all I get to do is I get to be part of what supports healthy beginnings and sustainably healthy relationships. I get to be the cause of self-love, soul connections, and sweetness. Tonight, I want to do something a little bit special for y'all. I want to do something a little bit... I'm, I'm feeling like Tina Turner right now. Tonight, I'm going to do something special. Tina Turner, I think there, there, there's about to be a documentary about her. Apparently, she's saying farewell to her music career. Don't quote me. That's what I think I heard. If you're a Tina Turner fan like me, you know you're going to be riveted. But speaking of creative expression, 
Tina Turner being one of my favorite inspirations. This has nothing to do with Tina Turner. I don't know how we're going on that segue, but I want to read a little bit from my book. So I've been talking about this book. I've been writing this book probably for a good solid five or six years. Um, Yeah, I started this book about five or six years ago. (laughs) And my plan is to actually try to release it. Let me not say try to. My plan is to release it by Mother's Day this year. And, you know, I'm in the last stages of editing right now. I do still have a whole nother chapter to write, but we're not worrying about that because I'm just working on it every day and I'm in full commitment to it every day. Now that I left matchmaking, I have more time to really focus on the things that I want to get completed. I have an amazing editor who owns a company called Write for Healing. So if you're writing a book and you need someone to sort of coach you through the transformation and the healing that happens as you're writing a book and also be a great editor, you have to you know, email me so that I can send you her information. Her name's Angelique and her, her company is called Write for Healing. And I believe you can also Google it. I want to say it's writeforhealing.com, but Angelique is her name. And Right for Healing is the the name of her company. Anyway, so she's helping me and, you know, we're getting that done this month because we have until May 9th to be ready to go live digitally. You know, and I'm going to look into some options for publishing all of that stuff. But I wanted to read an excerpt. Now, I want to preface it all by saying, like I said, I started writing this book five or six years ago. So there's things about this book I mean, you know, and I talk about the whole history, a whole history in this book. And so there's things about this book that no longer are true anymore. This is a story about, it's called I'm Not Mad, But She's Still Crazy. That's the working title. And it's about getting right with your mother for the sake of your love life. And as usual, you're going to hear my German shepherd wiggling around in the background because that's what he likes to do. He likes to make a little noise while I'm talking. But, um, you know, for those of you out there, you daughters that have mothers... And mothers that have daughters, you know what the mother-daughter relationship can mean, whether healthy or unhealthy. There are a lot of layers to it. There is a lot built into it. And the thing about my book is that it's not an instructional. It really talks about my own experience, my own perception of the trajectory of my relationship with my mother and what I needed to heal in order to have healthy relationships. And yes, I'm, you know, I'm talking about romantic relationships, but it also bled into friendships and things like that. You know, I don't know if you guys have ever heard me talk about how, you know, those things that we haven't healed, you know, we, we look for ways to heal them throughout our adult life. So, you know, that's why they say we often pick our parents to date, but we also pick our parents to be friends with. We pick our parents <clears throat> as bosses, as coworkers. Those are the people that we gravitate to. And if we had a dysfunctional relationship with the people who raised us, we will often repeat that dysfunctional relationship over and over again because we're spending our lives trying to heal the story rather than actually healing the story, which requires, you know, being able to acknowledge the story, forgive the story, stop making the story wrong, not be shameful about the story. And so that's why I wrote this book, is to be an example of just blowing all the shame out of it. And I talk very candidly about my relationship with my mom, my relationship with my sisters, my um, romantic relationships through the course of this evolution, I'm going to speak very openly, very candidly about all of it. 
And with the caveat that it's none of it is about making anybody wrong. Because for all of us, you know, we're just in survival and we're just doing what we know to do at any given moment. And when relationships are dysfunctional, it's very much like being in survival mode. People are just doing what they know to do. And, you know, part of the problem, I think, the reason that people rarely resolve certain relationships is because it's always this level of shame. If I call it what it is and the truth hurts, then everyone gets shameful and it can be very upsetting and then people don't want to speak to each other. But the point of writing this book was just to call everything what it is, to be uh, in admission about my part in all of it. And what I perceived about other people in all of it, because all of it is my perception. I'm not claiming anything that I'm saying about anything about these people, my family. I'm not claiming any of it as the God's honest gospel truth, because it's all coming from my own perception, right? But the idea is to just call it what I thought it was, call it with my perception, to just blow all the shame out of it. Because we all have our perceptions. We all have our stories about our families. We all have things that we're less proud of than other things. Things that we wish didn't happen, you know, when we're, before we realize that everything happens perfectly as, as it should. Because it's there to grow us and there's no mistakes as far as that's concerned. So, you know, that's part of what this book is about. Is to be an example of just being able to call it what it is. Uh, you know, describe your perception and know that your perception could be off, but that's what you experienced and being able to, to acknowledge it and also acknowledge what you need to do in order to transform it, to have a different experience, to be able to choose something different. And so that's what this book is about. Anybody who's listening, if you know any of the people I'm talking about, if you are any of the people that I'm talking about, just know that, like I said, it's all from my own perception. And most of the part that I'm going to read is ancient history. And by ancient, I mean, it's either between six to 25 years old. (laughs) But it's part of the evolution. And it's part of how I came to an understanding of myself that allows me to be able to be in authentic relationships with others, which I was not able to do wholeheartedly until I was able to heal what I healed. And this is how I did it. That's what this book is about. And, you know, it's crazy. Even though I'm recording this, I feel a little bit nervous. Like I feel a little bit of a, a crackling energy in even doing it just because, you know, I've been writing it for so long. And, you know, anytime you put your creative work out there, it's always a little bit daunting or it can it can be a little bit daunting or it can be a lot of bit daunting. And so, yeah, I feel a little nervous. I've read part of the book before on the podcast But, you know, like I said, we've been doing some editing, some updating. So, you know, there's some new stuff here. And yeah, I just want to try it out on you. You know, there might be a little bit more editing and updating by the time we release it. But like to hear it, here it go. Anyway, so I'm not mad, but she's still crazy. The intro. There's nothing more toxic to a relationship than refusing to have peace until the other person changes. Introduction, I'm not mad, she's still crazy. I want to talk about my life's evolution. I want it understood that change is why I believe I'm here. I believe it's why we're all here. But I'm not writing this to tell you about how you should change. I'm writing this to share myself with you. 
My hope is that something about my story will grip your soul and you will be able you will be inspired and define your own rev- evolution. My story needs to be told to complete my own healing. And by selfishly taking charge of my wellness, I am being who I want to be in the world. Someone who effectively causes the healing of others. See, often people think that selfish is a negative thing. This is just a side note. But to be selfish in a non-narcissistic way, to understand that your care of yourself is what has you able to care for others, is very important. And that's all that matters. I want to be someone who can show up in a big way and overflow with love. And I'm clear now that I can't wholly give to anyone else what I refuse to offer myself. I'm grateful for change. I'm grateful for the power it gives me and how it has grown me. I'm grateful that I can transform my thoughts and my beliefs. I'm also grateful that I can share my secrets and own responsibility for the way that I've been in my life, especially when what I was doing wasn't working out well for me. I'm calling myself out, mainly because all the things that I refused to name and continued to shame by keeping them hidden in the dark are what weighed me down in the abyss of depression and anxiety. The painful self-criticism that repeats itself over and over that may have once been my mother's voice, my older sister's voice, or someone else's perfectionism that I adopted longs to be handled, healed, and released. Fact is, judgment, criticism, and perfectionism are never ours to begin with. We inherit them through observation. And therein lies the danger of the mother-daughter relationship. The symbiosis and the sameness as it relates to the dysfunction. In other words, monkey see, monkey do. When I was young, I didn't listen to what my mother told me to do unless I was afraid not to. And I often needed to be coerced with threats. And even then, my obedience was temporary. I did, however, in many instances, do what she did, become who she was, and follow the model of her relationship with herself. The entire time, I was unaware that the more I resisted, the more I was morphing into her. The more I morphed into her, the more my loathing of her manifested into self-loathing. Ultimately, it became impossible to love myself. And now we know why they say that cycles can be vicious. A self-loathing woman can only raise a self-loathing woman. I was raised by a light-skinned black woman who grew up in urban poverty during segregation. Her father was an alcoholic, and she was the oldest of seven siblings with whom she shared one room. Her mother was barely a woman herself when she gave birth to her. My mother was a victim of childhood sexual abuse, lived in a dangerous neighborhood, and was most likely never told that she was valuable. Her life, her education, her very existence is a miracle. And that I'm here as a product of her survival skills, educated and enlightened, at least enough to share these thoughts, is a miracle. She accomplished more than would ever be expected from her. She pushed through multi-layered personal limits to make sure her children would survive as well. With the crude emotional tools she was given, she raised us. And she did the best she knew how to do. That said, it took me a few decades to be able to authentically and positively acknowledge my mother. 
It took me about the same amount of time for me to identify her as just a human woman separate from the title of mom. I didn't know it before, but it's been imperative to my healing that I be able to relate with my mother as more than just my mother, a possession. She wasn't just who I perceived her to be from my vantage point. Frankly, until I allowed myself to recognize her as something more, I was going to continue suffering from the impact of being just her daughter. I needed to heal our relationship, and allowing myself to do so is what set me free. The hardest thing to do is usually exactly what needs to be done. I was able to heal and release that which was passed down to me, likely from generations of ill-treated women who used whatever they had to survive. This was a pivotal part of my evolution. Hopefully you understand, this is not a story of blame. I am not interested in making excuses for the massive amounts of negativity I produced in my own life. I am more interested in illustrating how I went from blaming to owning and transformed a relationship that would have otherwise disappeared in history as just another story of human failure. I also want you to understand how opening myself up to something different than what I knew to be the absolute truth offered me an avenue out of suicidal thoughts of worthlessness and into a purpose-driven, valuable existence that is bigger than this human suit that my soul is sassing around in. Most importantly, I want you to know how my evolution was continually mirrored back to me through my love life. Everyone talks about loving yourself before you can love anyone else. Do we realize that the reason we need to love ourselves first is because each relationship we experience is merely a reflection of our relationship with ourselves? I'm going to share what I did to get right with my mom, and most importantly, myself, and what it means to fall in love in the most sustainable, self-expressed, and authentic way possible by starting from the inside out. Part 1, Chapter 1 anything but single, how I became great at settling. I was raised with two sisters. All three of us were groomed for housewifery. I, the middle child, rebel, attention grabber of the group, eventually broke ranks. Perhaps in the hopes of meeting our mom's elusive approval, my older sister married perfection in the form of a young military officer. Ever the one to miss the mark while trying desperately to be validated, my younger sister chose to churn out humans through dysfunctional marriages and situationships. Both rely on the financial provision of their spouses for an existence they both, by my perception of what they've shared with me, seem to barely tolerate. Although, to their credit, complaining is the family language. Three-hour phone conversations about what's wrong have been our unconscious attempt at familial bonding for as long as I can remember. And as far as all appearances, neither has ever consistently paid bills from their own earnings or been relied upon to provide their own lifestyle. Yet one is consistently angry, angry and the other consistently critical when and if we exchange com any communication at all. At some point long ago, I made an attempt to fit into family expectations only to thankfully be thwarted by a college relationship that was both doomed and unsustainable. The fact that I was neither Muslim, Afghani, or chosen by his mother were all convenient excuses for why we didn't last. The basic truth was that after 11 years, our love bond was not nearly as strong as his need to follow his family's cultural traditions and my need not to. 
Miraculously, though, we were committed to our romance from ages 19 to 30. When it ended, I was devastated. I cried in a fetal position for a solid 30 days. Eventually, I pushed all of my sadness down into that dark place where unhealed emotions go. I locked them in my soul to fester because I didn't have enough patience with myself to see them through. I decided to just get back to life, even if it meant pretending that I was fine when I 100% was not. I didn't have the tools to understand that it wasn't just loss and grief I was feeling. It was also resistance to my own solitude, a solitude that would ultimately be my liberation. When I was able to get honest with myself, I realized that based on his excruciatingly interdependent relationship with his mother, what had been glaring in my future with him was child rearing, closely monitored by the woman who would likely become my smother-in-law, and alcoholism. We were together for over a decade, and even though we had cultural differences, I considered him family, a soulmate, my partner in crime and compassion, and we did everything as a couple. Which was probably in large part why I had no idea what to do with my newfound freedom when we broke up. So I decided to experiment. During the relationship, I occasionally fantasized about what it would be like to be with someone taller, browner, and with a bigger penis. I also had a nagging curiosity about women, and my fantasies took me even further into the ethereal, uncommon world of what it would be like to be in a relationship with someone whose mother might actually like me, an outcome which was more unfathomable than any other. When he and I ended, we both had graduate degrees, and he was in residency to become a surgeon. We had been good kids. The closest we ever came to deviancy was a fast-failed attempt at anal sex that found me flat on my belly, spread eagle, head up wide-eyed and chanting, I can't, I can't, I can't, like a defective lawn sprinkler. As soon as we broke up, perhaps to counteract my very conventional experience with him, I veered into an experimental phase. The first guy I dated after 10 plus years with my terminal mama's boy was a wake and baker who lived in the Bronx near the old Yankee Stadium. We spent most of our time writing songs for his band and listening to him wax philosophical or invent conspiracy theories for why paid work eluded him. I learned that not only is the Illuminati real, apparently it fears the power of a woke hotep in a UPS uniform bearing overnight packages. He was much more enthralled with himself than I could ever be, and since I had intuitively kept one foot out the door the entire time, it didn't take much for the other one to follow it. After the Waken Baker came a string of short-term encounters and dates I can barely remember, all of whom I attracted from a burning need to be coupled up. I had a habit of glorifying the one or two evident good qualities I would see in another person and then taking on the task of changing the rest. For example, my theorizing Wakenbaker had an amazing head of Dominican hair that I brushed and braided worshipfully while trying to convince him to go back to school. Wherever my current romantic project was falling short, I would focus on making improvements. I was kind of like a relationship contractor. I would take on huge projects, and once I realized the necessary improvements were above my skill level and I had no interest in meeting the client's demands, I would stop showing up for work. Wake and Bake lasted for about four months. 9-11 happened. Afghani mama's boy and I immediately began a disjointed, disjointed reunion process. It wasn't so much that we were agreeing to get back into a relationship. He invited me to come live in his L-shaped studio provided by Lenox Hill Hospital on the Upper East Side. 
It was a place where we couldn't smell the burned rubber of the ruins and could pretend to provide each other certainty in a now uncertain city. I was living rent-free. When he suggested that I moved there, it was an offer that aligned perfectly with the motto on my family crest, Findeth ye a man to pay thy bills. We spent more than three years in an occasionally platonic cohabitation before it officially came to its final end. He wanted to spend his last year of residency as a completely single man, and I had become begun an unlikely and highly emotionally codependent relationship with a woman. There were two women with which my mommy issues got to play out in full-blown Broadway style. Both of them were controlling in their own ways. The first was incredibly worshipful. From the beginning, it was like she couldn't imagine life without me. We met when I was hired to work at a popular West Village piano bar. I always wanted to sing. I was in between day jobs. I went to a casting call for singing bartenders and patio servers. In those days, backstage was a mini newspaper for performers, and the duplex piano bar had printed an ad. I went to the casting slash interview, and I charmed the very handsome gay managing bartender by matching him quip for quip in his East Village living room and was able to get hired right there on the spot. In my mind, I had won him over with my black womanness. All my white gay male friends have gravitated to the mother of black Hollywood part of my personality that most black women seem to have on some level. However, I had no idea that the real reason I was so quickly chosen was because this bartending Cupid had an equally senior co-worker who he thought would be smitten with me. And he was right. From day one, she was clearly enveloped with admiration. It was almost frightening. Firstly, my other experiences with women was kiss practicing with family members as a very young minor and what I had read in Nancy Friday books or seen in porno, porno tapes. This was before Pornhub. There was that one time I walked into the college dorm of two friends who were also roommates, and they were startled into ending what looked like a ma- looked like a makeout session. And thanks to Facebook, I also know that they are both now married to men, so it wasn't as though I had witnessed a burgeoning lesbian relationship that flourished into anything more than experimentation. Also, at that time, my curiosity was purely sexual. However, when I met the first woman who had ever shown me full-on, unapologetic adoration— I eventually let myself be sucked into her vortex of love. At the time, her masculine over-functioning energy felt exciting to me. I loved have, having someone go out of their way for me so fervently. It was familiar because my mother would often do the same. My birthday was always a big deal. She would cook the most delicious foods. She always gave us cards and presents on every holiday. My singing bartender was the embodiment of that joyous, generous side of my mother. The dark side was that, like my mother, it was undergirded by the need to be in control. There was a level of possession, ownership, that kind of went unspoken. There was a sinister and familiar refrain of, do you see how much I do for you? It means you must always meet my expectations. Emotional manipulation. I loved her, but not in the, in the way her actions insisted I should. Even though we had moved into a highly affordable Washington Heights apartment and lived as committed partners, I knew in my heart that I wouldn't be staying. Three years passed and an air of sisterhood set in. The mutual bickering, bossing, and hyper-domestication was too much for my undernourished spirit, so I ended it and immediately began another three-year stint with a less wifely woman. 
This one was the hypercritical, never enough side of my mother. Besides the fact that I was just comfortable with hypercriticism, she was also incredibly funny. She criticized everyone, but because she naturally had the comedic talents of all the kings of comedy, if she insulted you, there was a part of you that just couldn't deny the humor. Funny enough, even with dementia, my mom finds any opportunity to be a hoot. No matter who I choose, I couldn't stop dating her. In my late 30s, after two bouts of lesbian bed death and the unavoidable admission that I missed Dick, I finally gave in and thrust myself into such a treacherous journey of unconscious singlehood that even the Donner Party would have detoured. Surprisingly, though, in the midst of all my romantic ups and downs, my childhood dream of becoming the black Mary Tyler Moore was taking shape. My TV art direction career was peaking, and I had finally moved into the one-bedroom, rent-stabilized, high-rise of my mental vision board. It was me, my six-pound Pomeranian who had arthritis and a collapsing trachea, and my scorching desire to be in a relationship. In my mind, I was nothing without an other. Concurrently, there was now Facebook, an unlimited scroll of, look how great I'm living, please mask your jealousy with approval by liking my posts. The elixir of family pathology, social media compare and despair, and six years of vegetarianism had me addled by desperation, which only sent me barreling over the rushing falls of emotionally unavailable men. I gave up my sanity for an ex-con, I cougared after a penniless waiter 10 years my junior, and worst of all, shacked up with another weed-dependent hotep type who always had a job, just never the same one, and was always spending money, just rarely put anything towards bills, savings, college funds for his kids, or anything that would display the slightest air of responsibility. We spent four years on a daily wild ride of fucking volatility, making up, breaking up, and then starting all over again. Hotep 2.0 was a highly abusive situation that challenged my mental framework, to say the least. Not just because it was the worst, most stressful relationship of my life, but because it mirrored my life. It showed me exactly how rocky and eroding my inner landscape had actually become. This unholy union triggered all of my unhealed shame. It reflected how disconnected I was with my own feelings and how I never spoke up for myself until my words were laden with anger and unhearable. It pushed me over the walls that guarded my vulnerability and it stripped me down, begging me to take a stand for myself. And one night as I stood outside a gas station in Queens, far from my Harlem apartment and completely unfamiliar with the neighborhood, with nothing but my phone and a scant cocktail dress that he had almost ripped off of my body and a pair of flip-flops I had slid on in place of my heels just before he put me out of the car and drunkenly skidded away, it finally occurred to me. I have to be single. Immediately. It took four months. But I finally got the courage to start putting my needs first without fighting him for it. I was in an almost constant state of anxiety. I was seeing a male therapist who was supportive and caring, which actually repelled me because I had no idea how to accept that kind of behavior from a man. Saving daddy issues for another book. You know how people say they become numb in certain situations? For me, it was as if every impulse to fully engage with life completely shut down. I couldn't even look at my own eyes in the mirror. Looking back, I realized that I was afraid to see my own shame and self-resentment. I didn't want to face what had gotten me in the situation in the first place. 
Self-hatred. Side note, if you are allowing yourself a little introspection and picked up this book because you have your own contentious relationship with your mother, be aware that the negative emotions that you feel about her are the seed of self-hatred. Everything I felt, including my fear of being alone, began to lie dormant. Playing in the background of my mind was regular volatile interactions with my sisters around what we would do about our parents' declining health. I was just completely out of emotional capacity. Even my natural vaginal lubrication dried up. I felt like a tumbleweed that had been swallowed by a dying dragon. No fight left. No passion. I imagine the lack of narcissistic supply was what eventually motivated him to move out three months later. It only took about three days of me not interacting with him at all for him to pack up his two teenage daughters and subsequently himself. After that, we rubber banded in and out of each other's private parts for an entire year before I grew courageous enough to be single on purpose. The more I started to choose myself, the less he showed up. It was a blessing. I didn't know it at first, but the purpose of my singlehood was to heal. I needed to forgive my mom. I needed to forgive myself. I had built up so much resentment and so many beliefs about what was required of me that I needed to learn how to listen to myself. I needed to define myself as a solo act. I needed to eat an entire 18-inch pizza. After all of that on repeat for some months, I needed to put myself back together mentally, spiritually, and physically. Thankfully, that last relationship was just the perfect tide to slam me against the reef and alert me to what I had been missing all along, the ability to fill myself up. After decades of believing that I was nothing without an other, it took a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of vlogging, buckets of tears, healing circles, personal growth workshops, and professional training to find the strength to be a one. Chapter 2 me, but with a penis. What do they mean when they say we attract who we are? But first, what do I mean when I say that last relationship slammed me against the reef? I never realized how truly emotionally and sometimes physically abusive I was until I met myself. So let's backtrack a bit and make clear how a super independent, high-rise dwelling New York City badass like myself ended up so raggedy and lovelorn. In June of 2013, I met me, but with a penis, on Plenty of Fish, which is the internet equivalent of meeting a guy on the subway platform. Back then, you could get on the train if you could gather together $2.25. You could be on Plenty of Fish if you had access to the internet. Neither avenue was a portal of extreme vetting. He was what I like to call ugly cute. It doesn't sound desirable, but it was my attraction to ugly cuteness that had me clinically obsessed with Vin Diesel from 2002 to 2004. Hotep 2.0 was all of that unconventional big nose bravado, bald head, muscles, a high level of intelligence fringed by zero common sense. We've all known that guy, clever enough to be emotionally manipulative, but resentful if you dare to flaunt your vocabulary. I overlooked more red flags than parents of school shooters when it came to this dude, and he plucked me when I was ripe, desperate for dick and denying my own worth. I wanted so badly to be in a relationship, which is exactly a time in life when people should never get into a relationship. And like many of us, I was steadily gulping the poisonous Kool-Aid poured so generously by romantic books and movies. 
The confused notion that the happiest will be is when we want someone badly and then we get them. When in fact, hardcore longing is a cry for healing. It's a sign that our judgment is clouded and that we are attached to that which we have imagined in our mind. Whether it's that we had, have led ourselves to believe that it will solve our loneliness or save us from family expectation, be our sexual emancipation, or for the old school single gals, our financial freedom, any of the above reasons for believing that a relationship is the answer are a trap. And trapped is exactly what I was when he found me. Trapped in my own thoughts of inadequacy and the need to fill myself up. In the early stages, I was excited that he was so great at planning dates. He knew every crevice of the five boroughs. He discovered all the most fun places to go. He always paid. He always drove. The last two before him barely had jobs or the social wherewithal to envision a dating activity that didn't involve my sofa. So it was exciting. It also helped me to convince myself that all the other stuff was okay. We spoke on the phone twice before we met face to face. He was incredibly charming on the phone. He had an easy laugh and a low timbre to his voice. And in those first conversations, we hadn't run into any topics that felt awkward or might later be off limits. By the time we planned a date, I was bursting out of my skin. I couldn't wait to meet him. He pulled up outside my high-rise building. It was July. I remember he stepped out of the car as I came walking towards it. He then moved towards me directly into the setting of the evening sun, which caused a golden halo around his bald head. I almost fainted from the etherealness. He gave me a gentle hug and we looked into each other's eyes for a moment. He smelled like a clean ocean of enveloping pheromones and male dominance. I immediately could not stop inhaling him. From then on, he would have had to kill a baby for me to entertain the possibility of questioning whether he was my soulmate, let alone for me to simply admit that we were diametrically just not on the same page of life. What I remember most about the first date was how symbiotic we instantly were. This was back when I thought symbiosis was a sign of compatibility, not codependence. Granted, I ignored little things like his crappy taste in music and the prideful way he talked about his hood past as if those were his glory days. I also called him a poet when he played me his rap demo tape from 15 years previous. Who cares that I listened to most of it like I was getting a tooth filled, cringing and waiting for it to end so I could remember to shut my slackened jaw. The date lasted until four in the morning and he walked me to my door. I didn't realize until we got to the door that it wasn't chivalry. He thought there was a chance we were going to have sex. He had no idea I had already categorized him as a boyfriend, which in my mind meant I would have to be manipulative. No sex on the first date, the second, the third. As much as I'm not a big fan of Steve Harvey's advice, I definitely was in such a space of desperation that I was willing to apply his act like a lady, think like a man hooking tactics because they work. Ladies, you will get a man. Now, there's absolutely no accounting for what you will experience with a man you've won through manipulation, but I can testify that it's most likely nothing good. So he left our first date denied. For all intents and purposes, those first couple of months seemed right on track. We dated most weekends, and as long as I stuffed my little annoyances, kept ignoring the red flags, we got along pretty well. I don't remember when the first debate was sparked. The first time we were embroiled in a conversation about society and racism, we locked horns. 
Neither of us would relent. It went on for hours. I remember feeling so emotionally overwrought and frustrated, not just because we had a difference of opinion, but in hindsight, it felt like he was siphoning all my negative emotions and becoming more powerful. In the moment, I kept ignoring what my soul was telling me. You know, the rational things like it's not worth the fight. You will never convince him. You don't have to convince him. You don't even have to date him. It's not up to you to change his mind. Let him see it differently. Stop fighting. Instead, I squashed my well-being, determined to fix this person and prove that I could make him see things my way. Little did I know that he didn't care about my perspective. He didn't truly even care about his own. His tank was overflowing with my negative emotions. So much so that the argument never really ended. We would just end up fucking. I took it to mean that he was so turned on by my passionate beliefs that he couldn't help himself. It carried on that way for a solid six or seven months, him knowing all the things to say to trigger my unhealed emotions and abandonment issues and me overloading him with all the narcissistic supply he could ever want and believing that I had finally found someone who could stand in the face of my bad behavior and not leave. In between arguments, there were toxic behaviors that I had misconstrued as positive signs of pair bonding. We went to see Best Man Holiday. (laughs) There's a moment in the movie when Morris Chestnut steps out of the shower in a towel. If you make it a point to fulfill your obligations as a woman of color and support black cinema, even when you suspect it might be a little pandering and cheesy, you know exactly what part I mean. The shower moment was a gratuitous thirst trap. I responded to it like a slightly dehydrated, sexually active woman by passing an involuntary 0.5 second moan that was heard all around the world. Literally, uh, hmm. Immediately, I remembered that I wasn't at the theater alone and felt a pang of guilt. From his seat to my left, I could feel him ice over and stiffen. Through the rest of the movie, there was no warmth or physical contact, no shared laughs, not even a glance in my direction. I sat formulating my apologies just in case it was that moment he was truly at odds with. Part of me wasn't sure because to me, it didn't seem like that big of a deal. To him, however, it was as though I broke the dam around his insecurities. As we walked back to my apartment from the theater, we were at a stalemate. I don't remember who mentioned it first. I remember thinking that I didn't want to be the first to point point out the shift in his energy in case I misread the situation. I also didn't want to be callous and ignore my sense that he was in his feelings. I also didn't want to start anything by getting into a discussion about something we disagreed about, which was a lot. This was early in the relationship and I was already in a crazy making codependent quarry. Whoever brought it up first, I remember going straight to contrite and submissive. How could I argue? I did what I did. So I apologized immediately, profusely, and with no reservation. For him, that wasn't good enough. He held on to his anger for the rest of the evening. The next morning, he still hadn't gotten over it. Little did I know he would take his righteous indignation and his insistence that he was callously disrespected, wrap it in a metaphorical leather sheath, strap it to his emotional holster, and weaponize it as justification for every nasty or abusive behavior he retaliated with after that. As all addictions do, our tendency to do battle steadily escalated. After a while, the arguments about world problems lost their potency like any other gateway drug. I resolved myself to sucking it up and leaving his opinions alone. What I didn't realize was that I was also cutting off supply. 
What I also didn't realize at the time was that there would be no peace. He would find another way. Almost a year in and after a break over the holidays, it began to seem as though things would fizzle out. And I couldn't have that. I needed this relationship to work out for all the wrong reasons. I unconsciously assumed that straight up communication was not going to be the way to go if I wanted to force things. I decided to use social media and write a blog post about it. I knew how closely he followed everything I did online by his regular commentary and his responses in real life. He may have lost interest in commitment, but was still curious about what I was putting out there. I titled my blog post, When a Great Guy Can't Commit. It was an honest journaling of what I knew a self-loving single woman should do were she faced with a non-committal man that she wanted. After all, I was publicly identifying myself as a relationship coach by then. Because I knew he would read it, I wrote it in a way that would manipulate his ego. After a month or so of him riding the fence, I published the article. He read it, and by his own admission, magically, he decided he wanted to make a relationship with me work. By April, nine months after our first date, we decided to move in together. I felt triumphant. In my full manipulative masculine energy, I had proven that I was powerful enough to wrangle a man into my life. Not like those other lovelorn women. Time to change my Facebook status and post some pics. People had to know I was worthy. Never mind that I f still felt empty inside. There was a light of hope. At the very least, I could present a facade of being capable of being in a loving relationship. Playing in the background were our addictions. His to my negative emotions, mine to his manipulatable ego. We were two narcissists and our darkness was deepening. When I finally discovered, after a few months of living together, that he had been reading my personal journals and excavating through my old files on my computer to read private details I had written to be shared with no one, I may have hit my peak of outrage. Our previous little arguments about politics and worldviews were just pinpricks. Going through my personal reflections is how he opened my jugular. For a while, after he moved in, our fights had been growing more and more volatile, and I truly had never dealt with anyone who seemed to possess so much insight when it came to triggering me. I couldn't for the life of me figure out how he always knew exactly what to say to inflict the most dramatic shame response or to send my heart into dangerous palpitations. I thought that it was the fact that he never forgave a single misstep and would hold grudges over the smallest of infractions. I told myself that I was just being a spoiled brat expecting someone to put up with the way that I am. I kept convincing myself that there was something wrong with me and I needed to learn how to stop letting him be a trigger. I wasn't wrong about that part and all the while he was actually scheming in order to feed his addiction to my emotions. He would read my diaries and find insidious ways to come at me with barrels blazing. He would accuse me of looking at other men days after we were out together somewhere. He would question my loyalty and chastise me for wearing certain things and further accuse me of being needy of the attention of strangers. It broke me down and mainly because in hindsight, a lot of it was true. I was in a relationship that I was trying to force to happen with a man who was grasping for control by any means. And every time he would call me out on my truest feelings, I would fear that the veneer was slipping. 
My biggest fear was that he would see the truth and know that I truly wasn't in love with him. I was just trying my hardest to make him be in love with me. And even though I was unaware of what I was doing at the time, every time he would call me out, I would lose all sense of myself, drop my composure and engage. Even long after he finally admitted that he'd been violating my privacy, I continued to stay the course for three more years. It still has only just dawned on me at this moment six years later, that I did not stand a chance. Mainly because I wasn't dealing with someone who actually loved me either. How could he? All he knew of me was what I had shown him to trap him in a relationship and what he read in my journals. Suffice it to say, he had full access to my darkest insecurities, but not my lovable, God-centered, true self. I didn't even have access to her then. Admittedly, I didn't truly love or know him either. I mean, I love him now because I'm grateful for the mirror he was. I accept that he came to me through my own call for divine healing. I love that he showed up unbeknownst to even himself to roundhouse kick me into my breakthrough aha moment and showed me that I had a lot of past to heal. But back then, we didn't love each other. We couldn't have. We didn't even love ourselves, at least not in a healthy way. The old cliche is that opposites attract. Perhaps that's true on the surface level. One may be shy, the other outgoing. One may be productive, the other lazy. It does often seem that when we look at couples that their outward self-expression is two ends of a spectrum. However, the deep recesses of our psyche, where all of our overthinking and historical pain lies in wait for a connection, is how we attach to another, another human being. So when we're operating at the level of our pain, we magnetize the same level of vibration in another human being. And he was in so much pain, so much so that he could barely make it through a 24-hour period without self-medicating. If he was making an attempt not to smoke weed for even a day, he would drink way more alcohol instead. After a while, sex with him was more often than not as unfeeling as any other part of his daily morning routine. Zero foreplay, just a need to chemically soothe something dark inside of himself. And I'm not sharing these things to judge him. My self-medication was food and anger. I gained about 45 pounds in the time we were together. I was so overwhelmed with trying to be what he would want and ignoring my authentic gut feelings that my need to self-soothe grew more and more out of control as well. I didn't even realize that's what was happening at the time, even as I sat at the bottom of a Costco-sized carton of goldfish crackers that were meant for the child I was looking after during the day. I still didn't recognize the hole that I had dug for myself. I began making attempts to get pregnant. I was already in my 40s, but I told myself that it would be the thing that would make it okay for me. I would have someone who belonged to me, who I could pour all of my love into, and they could appreciate and love me and love me back. Right now, I'm wondering how many parents are reading this and recognizing what a bullshit story I was telling myself. We made hundreds of attempts to conceive, and three were successful. The longest term I made it to was out of the three was 17 weeks. It was like I was in a spin cycle of my own pain. And when I look back, there were times in my life when I experienced smaller increments of this. I just didn't feel as though I understood how to live. I remember I used to find myself sobbing on occasion and speaking the words out loud, I don't know how to live, through mucus-filled sniffs and twisted, ugly crying. I would miscarry our unborn and he would sit with me while it was happening. It seemed to be the only time that we showed each other real compassion. And he never seemed to be all that sad about it. 
I assumed he had just gotten so good at being disappointed with life's tragedies that it didn't faze him too much. He would just let me lean on his shoulder and cry while I released the cells and tissues that represented our inability to create a life with each other. I would convince myself that these moments were proof that we needed to stay together. We were just as much the same in those times as we were when we were clawing at each other and pushing and calling each other names. We came to each other unhealed. We attracted each other with our vibrations of woundedness. We bonded and attached like two parasites killing their hosts. Neither of us could survive. Interestingly, I believed that all of the above could have been worked out with support. We might have been able to tap into real love and care for each other and may have even learned how to express it during times of conflict because there seemed to be no limit to how far our fights could go physically. Neither of us were in a safe enough space to thrive. We were withering. It was as though one of us was always injured. The bruises in the shape of his bite on my arm, his black eye, the marks on my upper arms and shoulders from being grabbed and pulled, waking up sore and fatigued from hours of brutal interaction over things we couldn't even remember the night before, being threatened with abandonment every time we went on a trip, always hoping the next time would be different. We were reckless and slowly killing each other, every bit of energy used up in the fight. If you've ever left an abusive relationship, you know that often it's like getting out of quicksand. The more you fight, the more you are at risk of suffocating. I can't say when the exact moment happened that I truly committed to accepting the situation and getting out. I had been a student of personal growth for 10 plus years already when I met him. We even took landmark courses together which seemed to only heighten the conflicting energy. At the time, I blamed those courses for making me even more miserable in the relationship. And when I look back, I realized that by studying to improve myself, I caused myself to see more clearly that my life was ill-fitting like an outlet store bra. When I first started to realize that my life did not fit, I automatically began to do whatever I knew to do to fix it. I had to do something that was radical for a lone wolf like me. I had to ask for help. And by actually seeking the support of a source outside of myself, I began to understand that what I knew to do was not working. The more I learned, the more I really understood what it was doing to my life. The more I understood, the angrier I felt. It got a lot worse before it got better. I was finally torn down to such emotional desperation that after a typically lengthy group growth discussion, I mentioned to a random fellow relief seeker that I wasn't managing well on my own. And for me, that was like leaping off a high rise. I was the I got this girl. If having an abusive mother taught me anything, it's that I was on my own and I needed to figure it all out by myself. She also taught me not to trust anyone with the real me because no one could be trusted. So it took for me to be so stripped down and bereft of solutions to approach this friend in disguise. I'm not even sure why I chose her. She was kind enough, but I struggled with even liking her. Much like a lot of the people in these courses, I assumed that everyone else was walking around spouting the transformation lingo while raging inside like me. I was so desperate, though. Desperate enough to let go of my own tendency to criticize and fear being judged at the same time. She introduced me to another woman who was running a women's healing circle in Brooklyn. At the time, my only frame of reference for a women's healing circle was a cross between the funeral scene in the movie Steel Magnolias and an AA meeting. I figured we'd be standing around sharing amusing anecdotes about our personal failings, and every now and then someone would have an emotional breakdown or tell a joke. And I wasn't way off, but I had no idea how much being in a community of solace-seeking women would change my life. It was there that I was irrevocably inspired to begin healing. 
This FemFest was 12 weeks long, and the first time around, I barely made it halfway through. I just wasn't ready for who I was going to have to be in order to make it all the way through. And my lone wolf syndrome started to kick in. I began to find all kinds of things wrong with the situation. I started posturing like I was better than the other love-trodden, overwhelmed women. Another thing my mother endowed me with, an almost impenetrable veneer of superiority. One of her favorite consolations for any conflicts with other kids I or my sisters may have had as a child was they're just jealous. So yeah, it was easy to fool myself into thinking I didn't need to see it through. My problems weren't as deep as theirs. At least that's the lie I told myself while justifying my abandonment of the situation. And that's where I'm going to stop. I believe we were on chapter two. So it's a full book. <laughs> so I talk more about, uh, you know, my relationship struggles and the trajectory that I, my life took around this healing, the healing with my mother and how that affected my relationship. And that's what the book is all about. We're going to release it by Mother's Day. Hopefully you'll you'll read it after having heard that excerpt so that you can hear uh, how it all turned out. Spoiler alert, I'm doing pretty good. Anyway, for those of you who listened, thank you so much. And I might read a little bit more. I'm, you know, I might do some more, uh, you know, on another show. I believe next week I will be going back with Celebrity Magazine. We're going to be doing uh, matchmaking shows. I'll be interviewing some guests. We haven't uh, set anything in stone just yet, but, you know, I'll be going back to doing live video on Wednesday nights. And um, so that will be the audio recording that you'll get each week. Let me know how you felt about this. Those of you who are on my newsletter, if you haven't signed up for my newsletter yet, you got to go to CandaceHarperLoveCoach.com or the EpicHealingCircle.com. Um, sign up for the newsletter and you'll get the weekly my weekly podcast newsletter. And you can respond to me over email. Get in touch with me. Let me know what you think about the book so far. And um, I think that's it. That's all I got for you right now. And you can also email me, askforcandypodcast at gmail.com if you have any comments or questions, anything that you want to say about the book so far. All right. So until next time, never forget that you are a love machine. If you ever start to feel like you aren't getting the love you need, just make more and then ask for candy. I love you. Bye now. Mwah, mwah, mwah. <laughs>